Matthew 26 and verse 1. Jesus has just been preaching for a couple of chapters on the fall of the temple in Jerusalem and on his return one day and told a number of parables about being ready for that. And so we pick up uh, the gospel uh, just after those sermons and as we head into the final few days of his life. So Matthew 26 verse 1, let's hear the voice of God himself. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, But you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Simple question, how much do you value Jesus? Uh, let me ask you first, if you're, if you're a, a Christian, how much do you love him? How is your devotion to him? As you come through the doors of church, how excited are you to, to be here, to, to meet with him? Uh, as you begin to sing, even that last song, great. I, I didn't choose the songs. Nick chose the songs this week, uh, but it fits perfectly. That wasn't an excuse. That was, it's a great song. <laughs> Psalm 45, all about Jesus. Just his, oh, King, that your, your church desires your beauty. In a moment, we're going to sing, how lovely is your dwelling place. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Again, from the Psalms. And we read it in scripture where we sing it and the words go from the paper to our eyes, to our brains, to our lips. How much have they come from the heart? Or what about your personal devotion? What you, we, we talk, or a previous generation would speak about your, your personal devotions, meaning that the time you spend with God each day in, in prayer and reading the Bible. Would you describe yourself as on fire, full of love? Change the question a little bit. How much are you willing to give for him? Give of your time. Give of your money. Give your abilities and energies. Perhaps you're new to church things. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And, and frankly, it all just seems a bit strange. Why are there 120, 130 people in a room singing to someone who we can't see? Promising to, to love him. It might feel a bit awkward. I've definitely had people say to me in the past, and I know some of you have too. Look, it, it's totally okay to be a Christian. It's lovely. I like all that stuff about, you know, loving your enemy and being kind to people, but just don't take it too seriously. 
those of you at the beginning of your uh, your careers, perhaps setting out into your twenties with life ahead of you. Perhaps you've had parents say to you, "Look, just don't." It's great to be a Christian, and everything. If that's your thing, but don't let Jesus, don't let him distract you from the important things in life. Don't let him get in the way of career, success, wealth. Two characters, two main characters at least, we see engaging with Jesus in the passage I've just read. And they're pretty obviously opposites, aren't they? There's the woman who comes with the ointment. Now, we're going to look at it in more detail, but, but let's look at the big picture to start with. She comes with this jar of expensive perfume, cracks it, pours it over Jesus' head. Now, we're in the Middle East. We're in uh, this village, uh, Bethany, just outside Jerusalem. It's hot and dusty and sweaty. People don't smell good, children. You don't wash, you don't have a shower every morning. And here she comes and pours this ointment, sweet-smelling perfume, over him. You can almost smell it, can't you, in the heat. Uh, The other Gospels tell us that it was worth about a year's wages. Imagine that. If maybe mum's got some perfume or dad's got some aftershave, imagine a bottle that was worth, what's an average, £25,000, say. This is incredibly expensive. And she pours it all over... Jesus, there is someone, whatever she's doing, for whatever reason, there is someone who clearly values him highly. And we go straight from there to Judas. Judas, who goes out to the high priest and his cronies, to the leaders of the church of the day, and says, what will you give me if I betray him, if I hand him over to you? And they offer 30 pieces of silver. And I wonder if that strikes you at all. Is that a lot? Is that not a lot? It's not a lot of money, to be honest. 30 pieces of silver. We meet 30 pieces of silver twice earlier in Scripture. We meet it in the book of Exodus, where Moses is writing laws, or God is writing laws through Moses for the people of Israel. Just laws. How to be fair. And some of those laws deal with, well, you know, if 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 someone steals your sheep, what do you have to give them back to make it kind of equal? Or if someone kills your your best bull, how do you pay them back so it's equal? Fairness laws, in other words. Uh, The Old Testament Israelite system had a a kind of slavery. It's nothing like the kind of slavery that we know the horrors of in the sort of 18th century. It's not that kind of slavery, but they had a kind of service for, for many years at least kind of thing. And if you accidentally, maybe your bull, gored someone else's servant, their slave, and killed them, then the slave was valued at 30 pieces of silver. Judas and the high priests valued Jesus as a servant, a nobody compared to them. The only other time we meet 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament is in the book of Zechariah. We'll find this prophet, strange prophet Zechariah. He comes up a few times in the next couple of chapters. Matthew refers to him. And one of the subtle ones is here. Zechariah was a prophet and like many of the prophets, he was not popular. He was sent by God to to warn the people of Judah, God's people, to warn them that God was going to come in judgment and the people didn't want to know. And so God said, Zechariah, you're going to be a shepherd to my people. Teach them, warn them. Call them back. And the people didn't want to know. And eventually, Zechariah says to them, what, what do you think my ministry's worth? God says, go, go and ask them. Zechariah says, what do you value my ministry at? You can read it in Zechariah 11 later if you want to. How do you value my ministry? And they say, 30 pieces of silver. And again, it's total contempt. Total contempt. 
They give him 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah takes it and just throws it away. It's nothing. Judas and the religious leaders, the church leaders of the day, treat Jesus like a slave, a worthless shepherd, a pointless prophet. Two very different attitudes. And so the question really is, which one are you? Which one are you? Are you the woman or are you Judas? Which one do you identify with more closely? If we're honest, most of us will see way too much of Judas in our hearts. Way too much of Judas. If Jesus is going to cost me, cost me seriously, that is, then I'm out. He's useful. But if he starts costing me, no thank you. No thank you. The principle, I think, of this passage is this. How much you're willing to give for Jesus depends on how much you realise you've been given by Jesus. How much you're willing to give for Jesus depends on how much you realise you've been given by Jesus. In other words, you've got to see first what you've been given before you'll ever have any devotion to him. If, if you want to move from the, from the cold heart of Judas to, to the rich, warm love of this unnamed woman, then you've got to see first how he has loved you. That is the language of one John, isn't it? One John, sorry. We love because he first loved us. So we're going to look at two, uh, two parts of this passage that, that give us an insight into how much we are loved in order that we might move from being the, the Judas-hearted people to the extravagant, generous, fiery-hearted woman. First clue is that the prophecy. The prophecy, verses 1 to 5. We're in the last week of Jesus' life, just a couple of days before the Passover, a couple of days before he's going to be betrayed, handed over, and crucified. Uh, chapter 26 uh, verse 2, Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered. The Passover is coming. This is a theme again that's going to be woven through the next few chapters. I'm going to die, says Jesus, at Passover. My death is going to be fulfillment of that great Jewish festival. John, do you remember the Passover? Now, the people of God were in slavery in Egypt. And God said, I am going to let you go. I am going to rescue you. But to be honest, you're no different from the Egyptians. You're not morally better than them. It's not the Egyptians are all baddies and, and, and the Israelites are all goodies. No, frankly, you're, you're all sinners. And I'm going to come in judgment on Egypt. I'm going to hold my hand back a little bit. I'm not going to come in full judgment. I'm just going to kill the firstborn in every household, the firstborn son in every household. God only ever acts justly. So, of course, it's the firstborn sinner. Innocent people would be spared. But there are no innocent people among the Egyptians or among the Israelites. And so if God comes through, passes through Egypt and kills the firstborn sinner in every household, then every Jewish household is going to lose their son. And so he gives them, but he gives them the Passover ritual. He tells them to, to sacrifice a lamb, a spotless lamb, and paint the blood of the lamb over the doorways. So when the angel moves through, he will see the blood and say, look, the blood has covered this household a death has occurred already for them. 
And so there's no need to strike the eldest son down. Jesus says, that is always really been about me. I'm going to be a, a, the true Passover lamb. I will be struck down in order that those who trust in me need not be. There's the first little window onto what Jesus has done for you. Part of our problem is we, we don't really believe that God should come in judgment on us. We don't think we're that bad. Again, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, most of us rank ourselves as just about above average. Uh, I can't remember how they do gradings anymore on GCSEs, but you know it, it used to be. It's numbers. Is it numbers now? GCSEs? Okay, that's going to throw me. Uh, back in the day, okay, it was it was it was letters. Okay, you could fail, but other than that, you could get an E, a D, C, B, A, A. So we, none of us walk around saying, "Well, we're, we're A star candidates." But not many of us think we're fails. Not many of us give ourselves an E. We're, we're C, C plus, maybe a B. Take a look over our shoulders, look around, and think actually, you know. Sneaking into an A, perhaps. <laughs> We're totally naive. We're totally naive and blind to the word of God that tells us that left our own devices, we should die. We have not loved God. We are Judas and not the woman. Left to ourselves, at least. Jesus says, my death is your only hope, but I'm willing to give myself for you. The Passover and then the prediction, verse 2. This is all part of this prophecy, the, the Passover prophecy, and then this, this prediction in verse 2. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Delivered up, depending on your, the version you've got, if you're, if you're reading along, it might be handed over. This is going to be a key word. It comes 14 times between now and Jesus going to the cross. Jesus is always being handed over, handed over, handed over. It comes twice more in our passage if you look at uh, verse 15, again, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It's kind of disguised unhelpfully. In verse 15, Judas literally says, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? Same word. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to hand him over. I don't know why, but in the ESV, they've gone betray and hand over and whatever else. They've disguised it. But it's the same verb. Jesus is being handed over constantly. Judas hands Jesus over to the high priests. The high priests hand Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers to crucify him. The soldiers hand Jesus over to death. Jesus is being passed from pillar to post. And it might look like, therefore, he is just the sacrificial lamb. Of the Passover. It might look like he's the helpless victim of fate, the powerless pawn in the hands of the mighty Roman Empire and the wicked Jewish leaders. But that actually wouldn't be good news. If we just had the Passover prediction, that, that wouldn't really be good news. Or, or to put it really crudely, it wouldn't work. See, there's something about those Passover lambs. And if you imagine it uh, yourselves, imagine that first Passover. Dad says, look, God's coming in judgment. The firstborn lamb is going to die. Sorry, the firstborn son in every household is going to die unless we sacrifice a lamb. And so you go out, out to the flock, okay? You've got a bunch of lambs. How do you imagine it happening? Did the dad go out back and say to the lambs, look, boys, I need a volunteer. One of you needs to step forward. And die so that my son will live. Well, of course not. Dad went out back, picked up a lamb and took him 
and sacrificed him. There was nothing voluntary about the Passover lamb. He was selected. He was an animal. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is not just going to be passed from Judas to the high priests, from the high priest to Pilate, from Pilate to the soldiers, from the soldiers to death. He is going to be willingly delivered up. You see, he's predicting it. He knows where he's going. He's not powerless. His prophecy, his prediction comes before any of their actions, before Judas is betrayed, before he's bound, before the passing over begins. And Jesus knows his Old Testament far better than we do. In particular, uh, there's one key passage in the Old Testament that, again, is full of this passing over word. The Old Testament, you might know, was written in Hebrew, the the language of the the, the ancient Jews. But by Jesus' time, many of the Jews didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Greek. So the Old Testament was translated into Greek and, and widely circulated in the days of Jesus. And that very same word, that handing over word, comes time and again in chapter 53 of Isaiah. If you want to turn to it, do, but let me read Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah says. We've all gone astray. There's the guilt. We've turned to our own way, but the Lord has, and again, literally it's that word again, passed on to him, handed on to him, handed over to him, the iniquity of us all. It's a prophecy of Jesus' death, where he's going to take on his shoulders all our sin. Later in that same chapter, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, it says he poured out his soul to death. Literally, he handed his soul over to death. Same word again. He's active, you see. Jesus is offering himself. He's not taken against his will. He is presenting himself. So whilst it looks to the eyes of the world like Pilate and the Jewish leaders and Judas hold all the cards, actually Jesus is acting just as he wishes, going exactly where he wants to. Isaiah 53, 12, the end of that verse. He bore the sin of many and, again, handed over for their transgressions. Jesus knows what he's doing. He is going willingly to a terrible fate for your sake. Judas hands over Jesus for money. The high priests hand over Jesus out of envy. Pilate hands over Jesus out of fear of the crowds. The soldiers hand over Jesus to death out of apathetic duty. But God hands over Jesus to the cross. Jesus hands over his soul to death out of love, out of mercy out of a desire to make sure no one has to face what he is about to face. Out of the wrath of God. A horrible irony that the Jewish leaders don't believe it. You see there in verse 3, the chief priests, the elders of the people, these are the religious leaders. They gather together in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they try and work out how to get rid of him. They're politicians. Look, we need to get rid of him, they say. We want to arrest him so we can kill him. But, but not during the feast. We don't want people to riot. Let's do it slyly, quietly. Wait till the Passover's over or grab him beforehand. 
their only hope of eternal life and they want rid of him. The horrible irony is they're acting out, again, another Old Testament prophecy. This whole, Matthew's just stuffed full of Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 2, maybe I should have read it earlier. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. means against his Messiah. Saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. The rulers come together to plot against the anointed one. What do we see in verses 3 and 4? The chief priests and the elders of the people, but the people of Israel this time. Not the Gentile kings, God's only people. They come together in the palace. And verse 4, plot in order to arrest Jesus and kill him, to get rid of God's king, the anointed one. God's own city has become like the the nations. Her rulers, like the Gentile kings, it's all really a fulfillment of what Jesus has been preaching about over the last two or three weeks as he prophesies the fall of Jerusalem. They think, let's kill Jesus and it will be freedom. Forgetting that actually he is the only one who can set them free, the Passover lamb. Uh, The prophecy is all about Jesus' willing sacrifice for us. And then there's the perfume in verses 6 through 13, the perfume, the prophecy and the perfume. Uh, what, what is this woman doing? She's, she's full of love and devotion. We've seen that already. In many ways, it's a, a model of, of, of pouring out of love to Jesus. But, but what is she doing? Why does she act as she does? What does she see the religious leaders don't? Well, here's this uh, posh flask, very expensive perfume ointment we read in verse 7. She pours it on his head. Actually, of all the days in, in the history of England in the last 70-something years, this is the best one to preach on it. Because you've seen this, probably, yesterday. Okay, if you're watching TV yesterday morning. In fact, you didn't quite see it, did you? Because the soldiers walked and put the screens in front uh, of Charles. This is an anointing. When kings took their thrones in the days of the Old Testament, they were anointed with oil, had oil poured on them as a mark of their being, being separated by God to this duty, this calling. What happened to Charles yesterday when he disappeared and took all his clothes off and put those, um, those screens up? But, but this king, look at this king. Look where he is. Verse 6. He's in the house of Simon the leper. Yesterday was pomp and circumstance and glory and wealth. You walk into that room, you know which one the king is. Okay, there's loads of people dressed in all sorts of cool ways, weren't there? Okay, Archbishop's got a funky gold hat on. Um, don't ask me, I'm Presbyterian, not an Anglican, but anyway, he's got, got a hat, cool hat and, and massive robes. Um, the Church of England's got all the, all the plates, uh, you know, those kind of big gold plates. Someone said a bit like the Wimbledon trophies, you know, across the back of the thing. Okay, it is pomp and circumstance, isn't it? But you know who the king is. He's the one with the crown. He's the one with the best robes. He's the one with the gold scepter, the orb, the, the awesome sword from, from Penny Morden. He stands out as a king. You know how to spot him. Where's this king? It's in the house of Simon the leper. See the contrast with the, the chief priests, the high priests in verse 3? They're in the palace. 
God's kings in, in, the, in the gutter. He's down there with the outcasts, the nobodies, the uncleans, the untouchables. Here is a king who cares for the dirty. Doesn't pull back from them, but goes towards them, stays in their house. Again, if you want to, if you want to become more like that woman, full of devotion and love, then see what he's willing to do for you. He's willing to go into the unclean house. He's willing to come into the, the darkest corners of your heart. He knows what is there. You can't hide anything from him. He knows the grubby recesses of your heart. Stick with the picture. He knows, frankly, your house. He's willing to come to your house. He knows what goes on in your house. He knows what you look at. He knows your internet browser history. He knows what words you've spoken to your friends and family. He knows the state of your devotion to him. He knows where the Bible is that you can't quite remember where you put it. He knows the strength of your passion or rather lack of it. And his response is love. <laughs> it's an incredible thing. His response is to come. Not to wag his finger. Not to sigh. Not to drop fire on you and me, though that's what we deserve. But rather to come down among us. That's why it's safe to give yourself to him. He knows what you're like. And he's still willing to give himself for you. He is a king who cares about the nobodies. Again, maybe in life, nobody has ever cared about you. It can happen, can't it? We grew up in families or uh, communities where we are just an inconvenience. Or perhaps we've done something. And ever since we did that one thing, it's all we're known for. Everyone else shuns us. But Jesus won't. (laughs) He will come. He is the king who cares about the nobodies, the anointed king. Uh, he's a prophet we can trust, not just kings, but prophets were anointed. There's a little hint that Jesus is a prophet right at the beginning of our passage. Begins verse one, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, it might seem like a, a sort of just a introductory comment. But that, that little phrase, when Jesus had finished saying this, comes five times in Matthew's gospel. Each time after one of the five big speeches Jesus gives, If you read the whole gospel, you'll see that there are five main speeches, five main sermons. And each time it ends with that little saying, you get the Sermon on the Mount. You get get the Sermon about Mission in Matthew 11. You get all the parables of the kingdom and the sort of seed growing, all the rest of it in chapter 13. You get a Sermon on the Church in chapter 18. And now in in the last couple of chapters, we've had the Sermon on the, the Temple and the Return of Christ. Each time it ends with that little saying, he finished these sayings. And most people think that, that Matthew has structured his gospel to show that Jesus is a bit like a greater Moses. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, taught five great sermons, as it were. Uh, this time, though, Jesus had finished all these things. He's done. This is it for his public teaching. Uh, it's over. He's going to act. From now on, we'll see uh, the truth of his message by what he does. A king, a prophet, and a priest. Verse 12, what has she done this for? She has anointed me for burial. Again, reinforcing the point. He knows where he's going. He's dying. How much does she understand that? Hard to know. 
uh, whether he sort of says, well, this has anointed me for burial, whether she knew he was going to die and it was a kind of pre-anointing, hard to know. But I wonder. She sees Jesus in Simon the leper's house. Now, it's unlikely he's still a leper. He wouldn't be able to host everybody else if that was the case. But Jesus has cured him. And she knows that. And so perhaps she finds hope. What Jesus has done for his skin, he can do for her soul. Here is a king who's not just a king, but a prophet, who speaks the very word of God. Not just a king and a prophet, but a priest, somebody who brings cleansing. He's cleansed Simon. He can cleanse her too. Again, that picture of clean and unclean is one that resonates with some of us. We, we, we just feel unclean because of our sin. Again, it's often sexual sin that makes people feel particularly unclean. But really all sin makes us dirty before God. Stained. And we, we read the passages about God's burning glory, the, the angels, the seraphim shading their eyes before him and think, well, I have no hope. And Jesus says, just come. You have in me. I'm willing to cleanse you. I've come to heal you in every way. Jesus, that fearsome preacher. If you've been here the last few weeks, there's some pretty terrifying things he says about eternal fire and judgment. We'd finish his sermons and think, well, judgment is about to fall, and it is about to fall, but amazingly, not on the religious leaders, not on Jerusalem immediately, but rather on him. Jesus gives himself over to death and judgment so that he can give you everything that he deserved. He faced your worst nightmares so he can bless you in a way that exceeds your, your wildest dreams. But this was the only way it could happen. And the woman, I think, sees this. Nameless she may be, but she seems to understand. Understand in a way that Judas doesn't, the leaders, even the disciples don't. Even they say, look, why have you waited? Why have you given uh, this ointment uh, up in one go when it could have been sold and given? That's the handed over word again. It could have been handed over to the poor. She says, no, she's done a beautiful thing. Even the disciples don't understand how much Jesus is worth. So let me ask you again as we come to a close. How much do you value Jesus? How devoted are you? What if someone watched your life for a week or a day? What if someone watched your bank account? This is very kind of, very kind of financial, this passage, isn't it? It's all, that, that perfume is worth too much to waste on Jesus. Jesus' life is worth 30 pieces of silver. What would your, your bank account say about how much you value value jesus 30 pieces of silver no no i'd go further than that you know a year's wages no thanks i wonder if they'd see a hobby jesus children know what hobbies are aren't they the the things you do every now and again when you've got time to to squeeze them in like a game of tennis when i can i like a, a trip to the cinema it's just a hobby a thing i squeeze into the margins of life when needs be is Jesus just a hobby jesus uh, Sunday Jesus, a bit of weekly religion, good, good fun to come along on a Sunday, see some nice people, sing some songs, have a coffee, chat, but gone Monday through Saturday. They see a 999 Jesus. Children, what happens when you phone 999? Or when do you phone 999? Just emergency, isn't it? Okay, don't, no one phones 999 for a chat. Well, they shouldn't do anyway. <laughs> don't phone 999 for a chat. I reckon I phoned 999 once in my life when I saw a fire. And you hope you never do. 
Is Jesus just a 999 Jesus for you? I'll call him when I get ill or someone I love gets ill. I'll call him if I've got an interview or an exam. Other than that, he can stay safely away in the corner until I need him. If you are half-hearted, if you see more of Judas in you than you'd like, this is a problem. We are meant to be like the woman and not like Judas. We need healing. We need changing. But, But the whole point is, we will not change. You will not grow in your love if I stand at the front and tell you, why are you not loving Jesus enough? If preacher after preacher gets up and tells you what you ought to do, then slowly, one by one, your heads will bow. Some of you, as soon as you read the story, were down. I'm nobody. I'm nothing like that woman. Some of you, as I started asking questions, began to get that sinking feeling. Am I more Judas than the woman? But if I keep pressing long enough, Every single one of our heads would bow. If all we ask is, do you? Will you? Why won't you? Love, 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 love. Frederick the Great, king of uh, well, what we now call Germany, uh, was once apparently driving his carriage. And he, he looked out and he saw one of his subjects not bow to him. So he got out of the carriage, ran after him, grabbed him and started beating him, saying, why will you not love me? How successful do you think that was? That is not what Jesus does. See, he wants us first to see all that he has done for us. This prophecy of what he would do, the Passover, the pouring out of his life, the handing over of his life, the cleansing, the willingness to come among us. And that is all as true for you as it was Simon the leper or this nameless woman from the first century. All you have to do is ask. How much you're willing to give depend on how much you realize you've been given. And the power to change is all in him, not you. And so that the one thing, the one thing that I would encourage you to do off the back of this passage is preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need to begin the day. You need to pepper the day, punctuate the day, telling yourself the good news of what Christ has done for you, of how totally safe you are, totally forgiven how you've been set free from sin, how your future is a glorious one, how whatever Satan whispers in your ear or whatever tough circumstances are, you are safe. You are adopted. You are a daughter or a son of God. How every last drop of your sin has been atoned for, how every last drop of God's anger has been poured out on Jesus instead of you. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Augustine said this, Rejoice, Christian. Speaking about Judas's betrayal, you have gained by this bargain. What Judas sold and the religious leaders bought belongs to you. It's in the treachery of Judas, the pitiful purchase of the religious leaders, that your freedom is bought. You are totally safe and therefore you can pour yourself out in his service, knowing that you are safe. What could you lose? Nothing. If you've got the God of the universe on your side, Preach the gospel to yourself day by day, all that he has done. And the love and the joy and the commitment and the service will flow from it. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we uh, pray to you now that in your mercy you might have us believe, grow us in faith and hope and therefore in love. Might we see more clearly all that Christ has done for us. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you that you handed yourself over in order that we might not be handed over. Fill our hearts, therefore, with your spirit, uh, that we might follow in the footsteps of this woman and be utterly devoted to you. Uh, This we ask in your name. Amen.